Welcome back for November, everyone. This is the 61st episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. As always, a little reminder that if you're not already, you can follow us on Instagram at at underscore AIR podcast or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash AIR podcast. You can also sign up for my very irregular Substack newsletter at airpodcast.substack.com and I'll include all these links in the description below as well. On to this month's episode, where I'm joined by American composer, producer, and instrumentalist, John Carroll Kirby. In his early years, John steadily made a name for himself as a session musician, collaborating with and contributing to artists like Solange, Frank Ocean, and Blood Orange. That collaborative nature has seeped into his excellent catalogue of solo records, which revolve around his piano, keyboard, and synthesizer compositions. But also draw from the jam session mentality and the controlled chaos of jazz, as he invites other musicians and artists into his colourful world. Never one to take himself too seriously, John thrives off the energy of play and breaking the rules of composition. In this conversation, we explore all the different ways that music can be fun, playful, and even uncomfortable, and how to find the magic and letting go. John, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been reading a lot of your interviews to prepare for today. And one thing that you said about composition that I really liked was that magic can happen when people are out of their element. So I would like to know when was the last time that you were out of your element and what kind of magic you created in that moment? <laughs> As a musician, um, you know, I think... Um, Geez, you know, it's it's always it's always good to be a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I think one one that comes to mind is recently I was playing at Gala Festival in the UK in um, South London, and uh, geez, it was just the build up to the show had so many moving parts, and it was so stressful. And I got to the gig, and a few of my band members have kids that they wanted to bring to the festival, and then the festival actually couldn't let their kids in. So then that was a big, that was a big issue because then how were they going to play the gig? And um, it was just one of those days where everything was um, just falling apart. 
but the I think sometimes when the day leading up to the gig is like that, then the gig comes and it's one of the best best gigs you ever play right. because you kind of got nothing to lose at that point. You've just been, you know, just battling with all this stuff and you're kind of like at the end of your line, you know, um, and in a way that you can be liberated by that where you're just get a bit reckless, you know. Um, that's how I felt at that gig. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, I was there also. Uh, it was really, really wonderful. But oh, you cool. also couldn't tell. <laughs> you also couldn't tell at all that you guys had had a bad day. Um, so how is it for you to kind of like turn that stuff off once you get on stage? Yeah, you know, for me, the gig is the is the dessert. You know, of the whole day of uh, you know, there's so much being on tour that goes into a gig. It's kind of like 23 hours of schlepping for one hour of enjoyment so in a way you gotta enjoy the gig because otherwise what are you gonna enjoy the airport you know the, <laughs> the, the taxi the sound check you know what i mean i mean maybe some some people are in, able to enjoy every moment but um i don't think i'm there yet mm-hmm. i mean i think that's still a really nice way of looking at things and like maybe a little bit uncommon to sort of try to find the magic despite being a bit uncomfortable or having a bit of a bad day um you know for example i was recently in a situation doing an interview in front of an audience and it wasn't my first time doing that but it had been a while and the setup wasn't really ideal and you know i I kept kind of looking back afterwards and thinking about like all the ways that i wish i had done it differently Mm. if if you know what i mean um so how do you kind of avoid that trap and manage to think about things positively oh yeah I mean it's funny you know with with performing like you say something on the mic I mean the mic just does a certain thing where you you want to you feel like you need to say something entertaining you feel like you need to say something at a particular moment even if you don't have much to say at that moment and so then you say something you know you try to make a joke when it's not really the time for a joke I mean I've been struggling with that you know ever since I started performing which was probably 25 years ago so um, that never goes away this sort of chance to make an idiot of yourself Um, but that can be kind of fun too I don't know you know it's funny like first time I played here in Tokyo in in recent times and we had a big crew of amazing people and they all wanted to go out for karaoke afterwards and they're like why don't you sing and I was like well first of all I'm not a good singer and second of all I've already made an ass of myself for like an hour and 15 <laughs> minutes today so I'm I'm good in that department I don't need to embarrass myself anymore um, but how I cope with that I think is just through repetition and I think you got to realize you, you're gonna you're gonna embarrass yourself a little bit and and by doing so you might you know you might make other people feel more comfortable with whatever they're insecure about. So you got to just take that as part of the job. Do you think that there's a certain amount of like positive thinking or joyfulness that is essential to making music? I personally benefit from that. Yes. Um, I, I, I think so. I mean, at the very, at the very least, I think it should be cathartic, you know, I don't know. I was just like, sometimes I, research you know metal bands or like there's that metal band Burzum which is like the guy in Norway or wherever who like murdered his 
record label. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I made remember. this like dark minimal synth album in jail. So that doesn't sound too joyful, but um <laughs> he may who knows? Who knows what he was going through? I mean, it sounds like a painful like drop of water dripping on your head for an hour. But I'm sure he found some joy, or at the very least, cathartic uh, catharsis. You know, I think it's got to be cathartic at the very, at the very least. I mean, for you though, it seems like you don't want to take it all too seriously, in a way. Mm-hmm. Would that be right? Yeah, that would be right. I was reading an interview of yours where you said that fun is just really important when your instrument is the piano because you can't have it be sort of too overly earnest or it might end up sounding like, I don't know, I guess a bit like saccharine. Mm. Um, and I, I know exactly what you mean in terms of like treading that line. So how would you say that you're kind of playing with that balance um, between keeping things fun and still making music that means something to you? Mm, yeah, I mean, right. If, if you push that line too much, then you, you're kind of making joke music, which I don't want to do. Um, I guess I do that. Uh, there's a few ways I do that. Um, one is that <clears throat> I try to have the melodies portray some type of lightness or humor um, or like be- whimsicality or something like that. And another way I do that is I sort of imagine characters in the studio. So even if I'm playing a certain part in a track, I imagine the person playing that part as part of a band or something, you know what I mean? And try to like imagine their ego or imagine like what their day is like at the session, you know? So like, for example, um, on Blowout, I remember at some point I kept telling the mixing engineer, turn that up, turn that up. And I said, you got to imagine that I'm the keyboard player and this is my key, the keyboardist album and he's a total egomaniac and he needs to hear himself, you know, uncomfortably louder than everybody else in the band. Um, So like sort of employing those techniques where it's kind of a ridiculous caricature of who might be in the room at that time. Um, And that's not necessarily something somebody will hear directly listening to it, but I do think the humor comes across in a way. So just putting a a humorous intention into behind a few things, I think gets through somehow usually. One song of yours that I love and that I feel like really captures that balance, especially with the music video is Blueberry Beads. Um, To me, that's like quite joyful but in a way that is beyond the sort of pop feeling like really funky and interesting to me um so what was it like making that song that song i made um i think i made that song in my old studio i don't remember a ton about making it to be honest um i I made it in my old studio which was in downtown la um but i guess i was thinking about um my my guru at the time, I mean, a man named Sri Dharma Mitra, and the the song um, "Blueberry Beads" is named after his beads, which are called Rudraksha beads, which sort of translates to blueberry beads. And and he himself is a very humorous, like lighthearted person. Um, and I was actually trying to capture some of his spirit with that too. You previously talked about how a big part of your music is imagination, kind of bringing this lightness and then letting people 
take whatever lesson from that or whatever message from that that they want to. Um, and earlier you mentioned like, you know, you're putting this humor in, but maybe people don't necessarily hear it. So can you speak a bit about that sort of, I don't know, putting putting these things into your music and letting people figure it out for themselves? Yeah, I think that's like something that instrumental music generally affords you. Like you can write a song about a bird and, you know, they don't, no one has to hear it like it's a bird. Um, they can, they can kind of take it the way they want to. And also, um, you know, so, some of the themes that I'm dealing with are personal and emotional or spiritual to me. Um, but, you know, the last thing I would want uh, would for it, for anybody to feel like, you know, this was being imposed on them. I enjoy that. I enjoy that freedom with, with the music I make. Um, you know, someone told me they were a massage therapist and they loved to play my music when they gave the massage. And I was like kind of offended for like a half second. And then I was like, you know what? That's sick. Like, great. Well, however it works, however it can hit people, fine. Yeah, I guess it's like, that's really important to them, clearly. So it should be a compliment as well. You yeah. Know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, sometimes or some people say, yeah, like put your album on and I fell right asleep or something. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, all right. Fair enough. You know what? You do you. <laughs> you do you. I mean, some people put on, you know, action movies and fall asleep. So all good. <laughs> so do you generally feel like it's better to kind of let people figure it out and that they will normally figure it out in whatever capacity, like the music will generally speak for itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think eventually, you know, I think eventually people will get it. I mean, no one's, I don't think every, I don't think anyone's come to me saying something like, you know, your music made me want to kill my parents or something like that. You know, like it hasn't been misinterpreted in any kind of like dangerous way. So I, that's all good. Um, I was reading in one of your interviews that you were raised um, to be quite cynical in terms of like spirituality and feel good ideology. Mm. Um, can you speak a bit about that and what brought about a sort of shift in thinking for you? Well, it's kind of interesting, you know, like my, it, things kind of like they say things skip a generation. So both my parents, especially my dad was, were brought up in like pretty harsh religious household. And so growing up, my dad stopped working and my family kind of ran out of money. And so my grandma was like one of the people that was providing for the family. So we would have to go to church really just to appease her because that was her thing. Um, and, but my dad, um, really, really didn't fuck with that, uh, that stuff. So he actually kind of got into like Satanism and stuff later in his life, but he was just like, oh, this is BS. Like, you know, he loved to put on like the televangelist channel and just, just to like mock these people like, um, Benny, I think it's Benny Han or something like that. Can't remember the guy's name. Um, Benny something. And, um. But he he just sort of took it as a, you know, he, he just kind of mocked that stuff. So that was how I was brought up. But, you know, later in my life, just just on my journey, just found some other stuff that that resonated with me and kind of and, and helped me deal with my own stuff. So um, so later on, I kind of got more open to that stuff. 
Was it difficult to let go of those ways of thinking that you'd been brought up with? That's interesting. Um, I don't, I don't think it was, I think in a way I was kind of ready for it because when you're just going through life, like, you know, not like deliberately sort of like shunning any deeper meaning to things, um, that's kind of exhausting in a way as well. You know what I mean? It, just like being intentionally closed to things, but it wasn't like a certain point, you know, things shifted, but, um, I guess just being around, like being around my guru at the time being like, Oh, this is an inspiring human being. Um, let's check out what he's into, you know, that, that, that kind of, I think that was maybe a sort of gradual turning point, but it wasn't like a, any kind of epiphany or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so then was music always a part of your life in that way? Or was music maybe like something that came along after that shift or transition in your perspective? Music, I guess, was a part of my life earlier. And that shift happened a bit later, maybe in my late 20s or early 30s. Um, but I guess, you know, I had never like associated... I had never really thought too much about spirituality in music. I mean, I guess I liked a little bit of gospel music growing up or listened to um, Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, if you're familiar, um, which I guess are, are spiritual things, but I had never thought of applying that to my music until around that time, you know, when I was getting into yoga because that, because of my idea of like, new age music at one point was just that it was bad. Um, and it sort of took, you know, I mean, really with the help of the internet to see like, oh, there's people like Laraji, uh, you know, in the world who are, who are doing, I guess you could call it new age music, but it's not like a CD that you buy at the crystal shop. Like it's, something else he had worked with brian eno he had you know done all these things over the year and it was, was a bit of a legend so yeah I, I guess i have the internet to thank for that What other kind of 
transitional phases can you tell me about? I was reading that, you know, growing up, you used to think of yourself as like a pianist. Um, yeah. And then and I guess a sort of serious sense of the world word. And then you had a piano teacher who really opened up your way of thinking and showed you that music can be fun. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So actually that, that piano teacher was my first piano teacher. And then later I kind of met who would become my mentor, a man named John Clayton. And he was very much like, if you're going to play a keyboard instrument, it pretty much should be piano because that's the only thing that actually has an organic sound that can be projected. Um, he himself was a, a, a bassist, like an upright bassist. And, you know, he was very much about like projecting your sound. You know what I mean? Like think of like, an opera sing singing from the diaphragm like that was kind of his approach to any acoustic instrument so to him like playing a synthesizer you know maybe was a bit like faking it so that that was cool and i and i apply a lot of the like i apply a lot of that stuff but um i guess it it was when i sort of had started touring with other people and a friend of mine uh said oh you need to get a synthesizer and i was kind of like oh that's bullshit like that's you know that's like impure or something but then through like playing on synthesizer i realized actually you can you can be very very expressive with the instrument and you can sort of play it like a horn or a, you know a violin or something, you know, if done right. I think a lot of people just hit presets. And so they're not actually like shaping their sound with the synthesizer. Um, but I always tried to tailor the sound and the sort of decay or envelope of the instruments like to the, the music that's happening. And so do you feel like, um, like opening up your perspective a bit and like maybe letting go of some of these titles like pianist opened you up creatively like can you hear that in your music that that open-mindedness yeah I, I think so I mean from that point of learning a synthesizer then I started to like work with all kinds of people in the studio on tour or in the studio and and that would be another transitional part of my career like working with people who you know in the studio, Solange is probably the best example where she's just not following any of the the rules that that other people work to, you know, for example, putting things on the grid in Pro Tools or certain chords, you know, that I would previously had thought are like wrong, like are completely right for what she's trying to do. So yeah, working with people like her definitely helped me like unlearn all this stuff that I had been taught. Mm -hmm. I like the word unlearn a lot. Mm. Um, another person whose influence you've talked about is Money Mark from the Beastie Boys. Um, and you sort of likened that to him kind of running around like a mad scientist, which I also really like. Um, what was it about his way of playing that spoke to you at the time? It's just, he's just irreverent, you know what I mean? It, simultaneously super reverent for the history of music and then super kind of irreverent for how he makes his own music you know like <clears throat> money mark i was inspired by be because 
his this album that he did with the Beastie Boys, the In Sound from the Way Out, was like the first album that I discovered that sort of showed me like how people can use synthesizers or vintage keyboards in a cool way. So I had always thought of him as like the vintage keyboard god. And then the first day I went to play with him, which was in like 2006 or seven, he shows up and he has a keyboard from like 1999, which is neither vintage nor new. Like, and it was just kind of a piece of junk. And he's like, oh, it's got this great trumpet sound. Watch, I can make it sound like just like a trumpet. And I thought that was so cool because, you know, he had been the person that like people could be so precious about these vintage instruments. And, and there was a whole culture of people who are like that. And he was, and he sort of maybe even started that movement, but was totally irreverent to even that, you know? And then he would do just crazy stuff, like play a trumpet with a air balloon and play it like a bagpipe or just find ways that you can, He's just, yeah, he's a total mad scientist. So yeah, that he was, he was a big part, a big influence. I love it when people are like too cool. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like just mm. like to, I find, I find that with what you just said about sort of not caring. I think that's really cool. He's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um. So you ended up going on tour with him at one point. Is that right? Yeah. How was that? Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. I was a, uh, yeah, I was much more young and like energetic young lad so uh we we had a blast man we had a blast yeah i mean sometimes i think it can be bad to meet your heroes and probably like even worse to try and work with them but it's good that it worked out yeah yeah no i totally agree yeah some people you don't really want to meet but um he he's cool i mean he's just like he, he's the best i still see him keep up with him on instagram and stuff and see him around la time to time yeah you've also said that he has this way of playing the keys that's like kind of funky and funny in a way that isn't exactly jazz but still sort of part of that world on this sort of periphery why was that so interesting to you that somebody was treading that boundary in that way you know I think I I had come up in a kind of like rigorous environment um you know like my mentor he didn't even he didn't even like it when musicians had water on stage you know what i mean let alone alcohol like for example if you go to see a classical violinist they're not gonna like an orchestra full of people is not gonna have their own glass of water on stage right okay makes sense when you think about it that way but like so to see someone that had kind of like again it goes back to breaking the rules a little bit and and being irreverent and yes and and i think that that's been a whole part of my my life and Mm. career again like unlearning stuff um is important because you're going to discover cool stuff i think that's what's so cool about um you know the younger younger generations of music especially people who have no like formal training who are just making music on their computer they don't they don't know any of that stuff. That doesn't matter. So they, they're not bogged down like I am. You know what I mean? Um, and when you say bogged down, do you still feel that way a lot of the time? Well, I, I personally, I don't feel bogged down in my work or in my output or anything like that. But like to, when, when I see someone like on this, on Fuji Rock Festival, like a hundred gecks were playing, you know, right around the same time as me. And I just 
I, w- I wouldn't say I'm the biggest fan of their music or anything, but like that they're not like to me, they're someone very much not bogged down by what genre of music it is. If it sounds nice or cacophonous, if it's annoying or mm. beautiful, like they've sort of slashed that whole judgment. Um, so that's something that like I might look to an artist like them and maybe feel a bit like bogged down, like, oh, wow, like. <laughs> there's so much out there that these people are unafraid to touch on. So um, yeah, but not in a bad way, not, not in a bad way. Yeah. I guess it's kind of like they don't even really, or I'm not sure how young these people are, but you mentioned young musicians Mm -hmm. and I feel like some young Mm -hmm. musicians that don't have that formal training um, don't know that they even should be afraid to kind of cross boundaries or like do things differently, if that makes sense. Totally, totally. And, and, you know, that's another thing about that I've noticed about young the younger people that I work with is that they don't like genres mm. don't mean anything to them because, you know, if and again, I attribute that a bit to to the Internet. You know, when I was a kid, I'd go to Amoeba or even go to the library and get a CD and it would be in this section of the store physically. And you can, and especially as it as a jazz listener growing up, the jazz at Amoeba Records, it was in a whole nother room. They were like, like, get get out of here, you weirdos. Like, go shop over here, like, so no one has to see you. Yeah. Um, but, like, with the internet, none of that exists. Mm-hmm. Like, so, and a playlist could be, it could be anything. So I think that's cool. I, I think that's cool. Yeah, I mean, you've spoken in the past about... Um your approach to jazz in that you just don't really have the desire to play things that are as complex or serious either for, you know, lack of interest or lack of ability or what, what have you. Um, can you talk a bit about that kind of distance? I, I think I realized somewhat early on that like, I don't have the technique. I don't have like the chops to be playing on the level of, some of the preeminent jazz artists of today. And I don't really have the desire. I I, I maybe did at one point. Um, So I think what I've been doing is just trying to work with my own limitations and work with my own strengths. I think like I'm a, I'm an okay composer. I'm an okay producer. I'm a, I'm an okay band leader. Um, So those are the things that I'm striving for. And it just takes the pressure off. Um, it just takes the pressure off a little bit. Um, and I, and I just leave it to the people who are better at it. Like in my band now I've been playing with a second keyboardist. I just try to hire the biggest shredder. I know, let them shred. I just, I'll just be smiling and just keeping the vibe good. You got, (laughs) you go to town, you know what I mean? That, that, that's easier for me. Um, I want to talk a bit more about collaboration. I think that's like one of the essential parts of jazz and also just music in general, I guess. Um, And earlier we talked about the magic of kind of being out of your element. um, And I think jazz music inherently contains a lot of that because you have to work with so many different people. You know, you're in all these different settings. Um, Would you say like that collaboration and kind of getting surprised by other people is a big part of it for you? It is, you know, and it, and it felt like I kind of had to go through, you know, because I released my first solo album 
five years ago at the age of 35. But I've been doing music since I was 16, so whatever. Almost 20 years of, like, downloading other people's processes and data and, you know, other people's, the way other people work, observing that. I don't know. It took me it took me a while, but uh, it's cool. I think I think it resulted in something nice, you know, like just seeing how other people do it and seeing how other people like don't follow the rules in certain ways. And um, but yeah, collaborating is a big part of it for me. Just learned so many lessons, like you know, I, the, the it's, it, uh, sometimes it's the ones that are the the toughest in the moment that um yield the best results like i used to play with this woman named ricky lee jones and she was kind of like a poor man's joni mitchell like man she was just the toughest this is, she would she would berate you on the microphone at the gig sometimes into the, you know it's the crowd hears it and she has such diehard fans that then the the fans at the gig would turn on you and be like, come on, man, keep up with her. Like, dude, oh my God. doing my best here. But playing with her really kept me on, keeps you on your toes. And like, it, she was so unpredictable that like, you do something, oh, she did it this way last time. I'm definitely going to watch out for it this time and do it exactly how she told me to do it this time. And then that would be dead wrong that night. You know what I mean? So you just had to learn just how to flow with her and it was actually really really powerful learning experience i don't want to do it again but uh, i learned a lot yeah like once is enough to learn that lesson i guess once is enough yes i don't need to be berated on stage anymore <laughs> thank you I'm good. previously you've talked about how some of your favorite jazz albums were made with this that same kind of unsettled feeling where there's all these great musicians in a room together but sometimes there's you know like competing personalities or Mm. Um, fighting over creative differences and things like that. So you said you actually like that unsettled feeling in an album as a listener. So why is that? Yeah, I think that one that the one that's like the the best example of that is Money Jungle, which I maybe had referenced in another interview, um, which is which is Duke Ellington, um, Max Roach and Charles Mingus. And they're like, the, the story is that like the session is going terribly <laughs> and it's just too too many people from different different schools in a sense and just different personalities and stuff and i love that like it just sounds like like charles mingus just sounds like he's trolling you know i think that's great in the studio like again i don't i don't necessarily want to be there when things are getting ugly uh but it can yield great results i was just talking with my girlfriend Kiko and she she was in an amazing movie called um Norwegian Wood and she was telling how telling me how the director was just like kind of torturing her and then you see the movie in the end and it's beautiful like you're like damn okay that's I guess that's how it it had to go down you know or 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 um Stanley Kubrick torturing uh Shelley Duvall and The Shining like I don't know I mean I prefer to believe that you don't need to torture people to get a good result sure uh but a bit of controlled chaos is probably a good thing i mean some people think that like artists should be suffering otherwise they don't have anything to write about yeah 
and I know people who, you know, I've met tons of people who seem like for whatever reason they need to perpetuate that condition and seem to torture themselves and choose the worst option when it, you know, like when it comes to <laughs> who they are romantically involved with or what, what, you know, how much they have to drink or whatever. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I certainly want to be happy as an artist. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the moments where things are, are going the best, you know, you're sometimes unable to, to enjoy it. Like playing Fuji rock, um, the other day it was amazing don't get me wrong but in the moment it was such a hectic day I was maybe wasn't able to be fully present you know to really enjoy what was happening and it took me like a few days and it wasn't really until seeing the video videos a few days later where I really was like oh my god that was so sick <laughs> But sometimes you just kind of have your walls up because just to protect yourself to get through the the stress of the of the day. So, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know why artists do that, or if it's just that those people have the most to say, or or what that is. But it's a thing. So what about for yourself uh, when you're working as an accompanist? Um, do you have to kind of put aside your own vision in order to keep things not in that unsettled place that we've been talking about? You know, these arguments over creative differences, like mm. you just kind of have to sit there and maybe it means playing the most simple part, <laughs> um, but it is in order to kind of give give somebody else their vision. Yeah, um, I love that actually that that takes the stress off me you know only once i've actually been in like a band band where everyone where it was a total equal say between the three people and that is that is actually the toughest scenario for me because then it's like what where should we go to lunch um what font should we use on the flyer mm -hmm. like it just i i'm totally cool to be the leader and I'm also totally cool to be the employee. Um, and I, I get a lot of gratification um, out of helping people find their vision. The caveat to that is that it just needs to be the people that I admire and trust and respect. So, you know, those people that I've wor worked with in the past few years all fit that criteria and that makes the whole thing 
super easy. So yeah, no, I enjoy that. And I enjoy if it means playing the most simple or doing the most simple thing, I, I very much enjoy that. Earlier, you mentioned working with Laraji, and I can imagine that was a really um, fun experience, even if it wasn't necessarily in the same room together. I'm not sure if you guys were just doing it by mm. email, but um, I think his laughter is so contagious, and I really enjoyed interviewing him. So I'm curious to know about how it was working with him. He was amazing. Yeah, so we kind of had just talked over email, but um, then after that tune, we had we had met up to do a video to a music video together for that song. Mm -hmm. And so we got to spend the day together and that was great. He's, he's hilarious. Someone said, the director said, Oh, how long have you been wearing all orange? And he said, Oh, since about 10 30 this morning. <laughs> I love him. He just had like, he just had jokes like that <laughs> all day. He's super funny guy, super easy going. Another, another person where like people might, approach him like oh the great laraji the master yeah he, yeah he's just funny like he's just joking around yeah that's awesome he's the best um and i know that laughter is also part of his meditation process um i wonder if you like picked up on that at all we asked him i haven't been to one of his classes but uh in the for the music video we asked we asked him to do like some laugh laughter Mm -hmm. And that was cool. He really like dug it up from deep and like really sincerely had produced this uh, really in infectious laughter on the spot, which I, I thought was pretty cool. Um, earlier, you also mentioned Solange and I was reading about some of the methods that she would get to kind of get your creativity flowing. Um, in one interview, you mentioned like rolling a dice to decide the next note. Can you talk about that experience? Oh, did I say, did she do that? Um, maybe she had, we were talking about, I, I don't remember that actually, that particular one, but yeah, she would, um, maybe she was talking about chance music or, or, you know, cause that's like, uh, that was the type of music, like chanson, I think it's called, where you like roll a dice. Oh, you know what it was? Yeah, 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 yeah. She would, uh, it wasn't. I don't I don't think it was exactly that as I remember, but we we would be playing, we would be sort of improvising something and sort of grooving on something. And then she'd say, Okay, cool. After sixteen bars, okay, go to the next section. And there was a few of us and we'd be like, Well, what's the next section? And she'd be like, I don't know. And I would be like, Well, what's he what's he gonna play? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, what am I going to play? I don't know. So then it, and it, it made it on the record. I forget which song, but where you hear this shift and no one knew what the next part was, but we were just, it was just going to be what it was going to be. And we kind of react to each other and just sort of land on this thing that's like a bit uh, awkward or like a bit um, jagged, uh, but, but, her just being so comfortable with that type of stuff and 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 allowing us to just do that type of thing. I imagine it kind of like improv acting, you know, when they say mm -hmm. you have to say like yes and yeah. <laughs> is it totally. is it is there I don't know what ha what happens in moments like that where you have to just kind of stop thinking about it and let yourself do it. There's a really cool clip that 
was going around Instagram of like Herbie Hancock talking about working with Miles Davis in that way where he, Herbie Hancock had thought he had played something terribly wrong and Miles kind of reacted, but then played something to follow that up that sort of made the previous thing that was temporarily wrong, made it right. So yeah, there are, there are moments of that and that, that can be really fun. And, and that's how you come up with it with good stuff. Sometimes just like, again, it's a little bit uncomfortable. It's like not what you know, it's not what you expect. That, that can be really cool. So are you also trying to bring that kind of energy when you are working alone? Yeah. I, I wonder it's hard, you know, because there's not like this other person challenging you um so you got to challenge yourself i i maybe i should try to yeah i don't know how it, it it's that's an interesting idea of how i could do that to myself where i'm making myself uncomfortable with something that myself is doing but uh, i'm gonna think about that <laughs> so what about when you are band leading or working with your own ensemble i know that your album Septet was the first time you'd done that in several years. Mm. Um, so what was it like to be on that side of things? Um, were you bringing in those kind of fun techniques that you learned from people like Solange? Yeah. Um, in, in my own way, I think I'm like a bit, I can be a, as a band leader, a bit more controlled. I think w one of my strengths is to know when to go, you know, a lot of sessions, especially if it's a lot of musicians, I'll have things pretty well written out or at least conceived. Um, but I think one of my strengths could be when to direct people to go off the script the other day. Like, for example, I was playing a song um, for this Fuji Rock thing where there was a there was like a synth bass part, but it but in the band is an is a bass guitar player and he was sort of playing a synth bass part from one of the records I did um, sort of as written, you know? And I was like, ah, oh, it's not quite, it's just not a bass guitar part. So I, I told him just lose that, you know? And I was proud of myself because I think a younger version of me would have said, Oh, play these notes or do it like this. But I, I think I, over time was like hold on i'm just gonna tell him just abandon that and just do your own thing and that i think actually yielded the best results and i was like oh cool like i was happy about that because i had saved myself like time and energy in this rehearsal being a control freak like to be just like okay just do your thing i know i trust you and and you're gonna do it right you just gotta you just gotta do it yourself do you think that music with instrumentals only gives you more sort of freedom to add and subtract things like that or experiment in those ways, whereas um, music with lyrics maybe would be a bit more pinned down? Well, I guess the one thing about music with lyrics is that it's the song no matter what's underneath it, pretty much. Like, so if you sing the national anthem, but you put you can do anything underneath and it's still the national anthem, which is right. I, I like to deconstruct things, but I've found like in my live sets, I've deconstructed things to the point where they're unrecognizable, which is fun for me 
but sometimes people like blueberry beads is a great example where that one I've live, I've just kind of trashed it where people come up to me after the gig and be like, Oh, I wish you played blueberry beads. And I'm like, oh, well, I did. So I guess <laughs> it's like, it's beyond recognition sometimes. So, um, so I guess that's the one thing about like messing up instrumental stuff that it can kind of get deconstructed so much that it's un unrecognizable. And what about in terms of like, um, quantity, I guess, like, You've put out, I think, like six albums in the last four years, which is a really incredible feat, I think. But I wonder if it's because, you know, you don't have to like pin down the lyrics in this way because there are no lyrics. So you can kind of just explore and then that's en enough, if that makes sense. Yeah, that is true. I I very much enjoy that about making instrumental music. And some of those albums like I made and, oh, you know, a few of those like kind of more solo piano things I made, oh, just like, over the course of a couple of days, you know, mm. some improvised and semi-improvised. So that part is really cool. And I feel like if I was a singer or, a, you know, if there were, it would just be too much. Like, you know, if there was like a singer with that kind of output, people would be like, well, why don't you just pick the, 10 bests of those six albums and make that one album. You know what I mean? That's right. sort of for, yeah. for better or for worse. That is kind of more of a, more on the record business side where, you know, a record company might not want to promote six vocal albums over the course of a couple of years. You know what I mean? And that was something that when I signed with Stones Throw, I told them like, I want to just be putting stuff out, not because, I don't even know if that's like a good strategy. It very likely isn't, you know, from a business sense. But for me, that just keeps things flowing and keeps it so I don't feel bogged down. Think about Frank Ocean, where like he released an amazing album in 2016. And here we are like seven going on eight years later. And we're all waiting for this follow up. If that's the way he wants to do it, of course, that's cool but to me for me i just wouldn't you know that just sounds like so much pressure you know i'd rather just throw it out you know and i thought that was so cool about the um mac demarco release that came out earlier this year where he just unloaded his hard drive you know mm, yeah i can imagine that's like for you a very free and ideal way of working as an artist where you don't have to like toil over whether or not to put something out and like you can just express yourself and then record it and then put it out and like that's great you know yeah i like that 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 works for me
You've been listening to John Carroll Kirby for AIR episode 62. We'll be back on the last Wednesday of the month, so check back in December for the last episode of 2023. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at at underscore AIR podcast or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash AIR podcast. You can also sign up for my very regular Substack newsletter at airpodcast.substack.com. See you in December and thanks for listening. Thank you.